Let's get to know a little more about Hamish Turner, Director of Nine Now and Programming at Nine Entertainment. Hamish, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Aaron, for having me. Great to, uh, great to finally uh, to chat. Absolutely. Well, at the moment, there is so many opinions about free-to-wear. Some say it's dying, some say it's evolving, some say it's uh, com a completely different product to what it used to be. Every network has shows down year on year. Nobody's immune to declining overnights. What's your take on the free-to-wear landscape? I think it's evolving. I think it's it's very clear that it's evolving, but evolution has kind of been at the centre of of our jobs, you know, for the for the past kind of twenty years. I mean, if you think about how things have changed, the rise of the multi channels, uh, the obviously the increase in terms of digital consumption, uh, but ultimately it's it's somewhat dictated by the audience. They're the ones who um, you talk about holding the keys. They're the ones who hold the keys, and and we respond to obviously how they're they're changing those habits and, and ensure that we try and um, keep up with those trends and, and perhaps even stay ahead of them. So I think it's always an evolution, uh, but what is always core is that content is king um, and we need to maintain focus on that and ensure that we're serving up content that engages, surprises, entertains um, and continues to delight. So I think you know, that, that is the challenge back to us. In a changing landscape where consumption is changing, um, we need to continue to provide that to the audience. In uh, interviews I've done with your opposition colleagues, there's been a fascination from the people listening about your personal journeys. I mean, programming director at a free-to-wear station is just one of five in Australia. It's a rare beast. And one I assume you weren't aspiring to when, when you were a kid. So let's start with maybe the end of high school, where was your life heading at that moment? Yeah, look, I think uh, you go back to programming director. I, I don't think I would have even known that such a role existed. Um, <laughs> but if I, if I go back to end of high school, I think probably like a lot of people, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, um, you know, and play kind of a lot of sport at school. Um, you know, that, that was kind of an interest, but, you know, I had a knee reconstruction at the end of school and kind of put that on, on hold. So I think, you know, for me, I went into an arts degree, um, possibly a bit of a cop-out, but it does give you time to, <laughs> to assess exactly where your passions are and what exactly you want to do in life. Um, so went to Monash Uni in Melbourne. I grew up in Melbourne obviously now based in Sydney, but Melbourne boy through and through. Um, uh, did a degree, again, the, the kind of subjects I did were, were quite broad. But I think going back to where that root of interest for TV and content came from, I was always fascinated um, by pop culture. Um, I love music. You know, I, I kind of collect vinyl um, in my spare time. Um, I was always a kind of ferocious consumer of, of movies. I remember staying up late um, when I was at, at uni and at school watching, I think it was The Sopranos and West Wing, which nine would always schedule at 10.30 at nine. I could never understand why. Um, and, um, and I actually remember earliest kind of touch point with TV in terms of analysis. I'd always pick up the Green Guard on a Thursday, which was a lift out and still is a lift out um, in the age in Melbourne. And I'd be fascinated by what people were watching. And I'd always kind of read the top 10. And I remember they did a both a national and a, and a local view of it. Um, and uh, it's fair to say, actually, when we were growing up, we were very much a, a seven household. 
I'd watch Home and Away, the country practice, yeah. obviously the AFL um, or the VFL as it was kind of in the 80s. Um, and I just had an intrigue around why people watched what they did. Um, and I think probably that was the, the seed of really going into that field. I had a passion for it um, and I loved watching content. And I think that was kind of what it stemmed. And I think early on, you know, my, my, my dad had always said, you know, you need to find something you're passionate about uh, and probably knew my personality type. And I think if I look at it, it's really something whereby if I'm not engaged with something, I probably won't give it much time. But those things that I love and enjoy, I'll, I'll put 100% into. And um, and I think that's kind of how I kind of started on that journey. So did an arts degree in Monash Uni. Again, got to the end of that, didn't know what I wanted to do. Didn't really know it was out there. But I did know someone who worked in television. His name was David Rhodes, and he was um, head of sport in the Melbourne office. So I went and spoke to him, and he said, look, you know, um, I'm here come and have a chat when when you're um, when you're thinking about kind of taking on a full-time job. In the interim, I went over the, overseas, went to the UK, spent two years over there, um, really just enjoying myself, to be honest, and then got to the age of 23 and realised I needed to find a career. So I came back mm. to Australia, went and spoke to Rosie. He put me in touch with, um, with um, uh, these... Uh, he said the best place to start is in sales because there's plenty of jobs available in sales. And, and you get a good grounding in terms of uh, what the TV industry is about. So I took it a sales assistant role in 2003. Um, and I've been at nine ever since. So it's probably a long-winded tale as to how I got there. But uh, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's been, a, it's been a, a fun journey and uh, obviously an ever-evolving journey. And kind of my roles throughout have, have always changed with the time. So was was that your path to to your current role? You you were in sales, and then what did you did you pop into in, into programming or something after that? Yeah, so um, great guy called Len Downs uh, worked out of the GD office. He was the head of programming in Melbourne, um, and really smart guy. Kind of a lot of great gut feel and intuition. Um, and I think probably within the first week of going into or starting the job at nine. Uh, realized that content was where I wanted to be. And so, you know, I think probably strategically tried to saddle up as much as I could to him and and carved out a bit of a role, which was a conduit between programming and sales. So I would disseminate the information from um, the programming team back to the sales team. And and from there, um, probably uh, fair to say that's kind of how the content team got to know me. Um, and then an opportunity arose. And I think Jeff Brown, uh, was, was Jeff Brown was was running in Melbourne at the time, and he and um, he gave me the opportunity to enter programming. And I actually think it was interesting. I was it was 2007, I think it was 2007, and um, and uh, I think Michael Healy, who is still uh, director of television at Nine, David Gingell, uh, Downsy, Jeff Brown, I think Ian Law, who was running PBL at the time. We're all down in Melbourne, and they said, "Well, look, if you if you want to enter programming, you got to have it. You got to convince these guys." So, I sat entered a room with them, um, and I think at the end of it, Ginge said, "Oh well, we might as well give him a crack," and <laughs> um, and that was it. And so, uh, uh, jumped into the programming team as probably a programming assistant, and um, and and that was that. So that was two thousand seven, and then in two thousand and nine, Jeff Brown said, "Look, mate, if you really want to make it in programming." 
you need to go to Sydney. And, uh, and so I packed up and originally it was three months and we're now, um, you know, what's that 13 years later. So that was the, that was, that's the abridged version of how I got there, but it's an odd journey. Not many people go from uh, sales into programming. It's fair to say. I'm just interested to know how much pressure there is in the seat. I mean, I could only imagine that that you're the toast of the town when something like maths fires and, and then you're sort of really challenged when, you know, another show doesn't perform. I mean, how much pressure is there? Look, I, I, you know, and I've said this before, <clears throat> we have a great team at Nine and, you know, Michael Healy is is the director of TV. Uh, we've got Adrian Swift as the director of production, but you never lose that feeling at nine o'clock when a new show is launching. Um, and, you know, you, you, you can't sleep the night before and the heart rate increases and your destiny is somewhat determined by um, what the Austin panel has told us. Um, and it can be boom and bust. And I've been in that room where, it's bust, uh, but you've been in that room where it, it's boom time and, you know, some of the kind of the shows that I remember seeing really break out. I remember Ninja launching to, I think it was 1.7 million, The Voice launching to 2.2 and was one of those rare beasts that we came in the second day and it had grown on that overnight number. Um, yeah, but then there's those shows that just don't work and, you know, your stomach sinks, uh, but you have to pick yourself up and keep moving. I mean, the... the the environment we work in is so fast paced um, and there's so much stuff coming at you and you've just got to be nimble and fluid and you've got to be resilient because everybody's got an opinion. Everybody makes a comment and there's always those 901 um, heroes who walk in and tell you what, what you should have done after the fact. Uh, <laughs> but uh, look, you, you wouldn't swap it in the world because it, it it's, you know, it's, it's kind of edge of your seat stuff and you've got this rare privilege to be able to um, commission shows, create shows, schedule shows uh, that, you know, millions of people will watch. Mm. And I always thought about it in terms of the number of people. If you go to the MCG and you're there on grand final day and you look out and you look at the 100,000 people who are sitting in that stadium and then you think about, you know, Look at the voice when it launched. It did two point two. Times that by twenty. The 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 strength and the ability to hit that audience and you know emotionally move them is not lost on us. Um, and I think that's as I said, it's a gift, and we don't we don't take it for granted. So, what, what does an actual day look like for you, Hamish? Do you, do you come in, check the ratings? What 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 happens on a normal day? Uh, well, I guess this kind of goes. I guess this question probably goes back to really me and what's my personal life look like so uh i'm married i've got four kids they range from uh eight year old who's the eldest down to a 21 month old so um life at home is probably similar to the life at work in that it is a pretty hectic environment um (laughs) so i'm up early it's either i don't yeah look i'm always up by probably 5 30 in the morning um invariably it's woken by one of the kids um but i'm I'm up early i kind of get out the door early um so probably out the door by quarter past six and then in the office by quarter past seven try and grab a coffee on the way to work uh if there's no parks at my local coffee shop i'll keep driving until i find one um and then you're in and i think probably the first hour of the day is either 
catching up on what's happened overnight. So we obviously get reports around what's happened in the US, what's happened in the UK. You'll get sent shows that you'll try and kind of grab some time to have a look at. Um, you're trying to get back to emails that you haven't got back to or at least read them. Um, and then, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of start coming in around 8 duty. So that's when it starts. It's kind of like a washing machine, really. You kind of jump in the washing machine. Sometimes you don't really know which way it's going to spin or turn or throw you into. Um, and you get to the end of the day and it's kind of like, oh, geez, I've got to do that all again. But like the, the day is you're catching up with your teams. Obviously, I'm, I'm looking after nine now as well. So that that has meant that you're dealing with a whole new set of people um, that sit in the digital space. And that's been really rewarding. I mean, the last year, the kind of learn, learning curve has been has been great, to be honest. And, you know, we are moving into a streaming first future and it's it's been a great journey in terms of understanding it, understanding the complexities of, of what a digital world looks like. You know, we've gone from being in a very much closed environment where you're protected by a spectrum, but you've also only got um, a finite amount of space that you can work with. Whereas in the digital world, you know, it's the wild, wild west. Um, you're not, you don't have protections that you necessarily have in a, in a broadcast world, but with that comes opportunity. And so I think part of that has been, well, what, what does television and free-to-air television look like moving forward? What does that look like in a digital and streaming first world? And, and you know, how do we harness the power of what we've always been good at and take it into the next phase to ensure um, both survival and, and you know and a thriving a thriving platform. Um, so part of the day is dealing with those guys. Um, it's it's getting as much information as possible. It's it's obviously looking at nine o'clock, and I think there's key points in the day. At nine o'clock, the numbers come in. You digest those. You try and um, you know carve it, understand it, look at where some of the challenges are. And a lot of the, the day is, I think it's broken into the three parts. One is looking in the current, so looking back, looking in the current, but really looking into the future, understanding, you know, what we need to be doing in six, 12, 18 months' time. Um, and I think that for, for is kind of the crux of the day. I'll try and get out by 5.30 because, you know, our home, 6.30, kids, dinner, um, and then I'm down in front of the TV again at 7.30. Um, you know, I think some... Some listeners probably think, uh, you know, there's plenty of perks and, and uh, fun times in the job, but, you know, I spend my nights watching TV because uh, that's the job um, and that doesn't change. And you've got to be a consumer of free-to-air. You've got to um, enjoy free-to-air and understand how the audience is consuming free-to-air. You know, and now there's complexities in terms of diff different distribution of the to the platform. So now you're consuming via... Nine now, understanding the challenges there. What 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 does that experience look like? Um, but uh, there's no, there's never a dull moment. It's, it's fair to say, Aaron. So when you're on the couch at home, what are you actually watching? What do you enjoy watching? So I will I will watch um, all free to air um, all free to air competitors. Um, I'll probably now spend majority of my time watching primary channels. Um, and look, if I get uh, if I get spare time, I'm then flicking through the SVODs. Um, you know, last night I watched, I think it was the third episode of Stranger Things, uh, season four. Um, but, you know, again, we're like voracious consumers. Like you need to understand the entire spectrum of, of what is available to the audience. So, 
always consuming, always trying to understand, always learn, um, you know, what is, what is popping and why it's popping. Um, I'm intrigued by Stranger Things, actually, because, and I don't know if, if, if you watch it, Aaron, but there has been a very interesting creative turn in terms of this season. Uh, almost is going into the horror space. And the interesting thing there is that we know horror is 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 quite niche and nuanced. Um, and I think it's been a really interesting creative move from that team. Um, there's obviously been a big hiatus in terms of 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 the of the show. And so the kids are now adults. I mean, I looked mm-hmm. it up the other day. Steve, I don't know what his um the actor's name is, but he's 30 in real life. Oh, wow. It's kind of like I don't know if you remember nine hundred two one zero. I do. Um, there is like the, 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 there was a thirty two year old playing uh, uh, an eighteen year old. It kind of feels like that again. But yeah, no, some really interesting creative choices, um, which I think I don't know. I'd be intrigued. I'd be intrigued to know what the completion rate on on it is. I mean, it is it is a unique beast that show. But um, I just I find it intriguing what they've done with this season. Do you ever find that your own taste of of what you like seems to seep into the into the nine programming? I haven't seen the West Wing or Sopranos on nine now yet, but uh, are there any of your own tastes that seep through? Yeah, I think that I think that's locked into the Warner Brothers deal that Foxtel have, so they'll have um, all those shows. Uh, absolutely, I think when I was at uni uh, doing that arts degree, I did lean into um, probably more. Uh, cultish type viewing um and even when i was in the uk you know i'd go and see uh go to indie cinemas and i remember going to the london film festival and seeing the launch of uh the premiere of donnie darko so i think you indulge yourself when you're at a certain age um but i think with with uh the job you really view at you you try and consume as a viewer and and you talked about it before the job is is a lot of gut and it's a lot of experience. And I think you build um, you build that over time. And so I'm very much a free-to-air commercial viewer and enjoy free-to-air commercial shows. You know, like uh, I guess the challenge with some of our shows is that you've already seen them by the time they go to air. So you, 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 uh, there is, I think there is a really unique um, part of the job where your ability just to sit back and view as an audience. I think one of the, I think I, I find sometimes when you're talking to either colleagues or, or competitors or whatever, sometimes people try and overanalyze the, the, the viewing experience, but sometimes the best thing is to turn your brain off and just kind of feel what, trust your feel, trust your gut. Because um, often people aren't there analyzing every frame. They're not there uh, picking up every nuance of a show. Uh, it's actually how it flows over them. And so, yeah, sometimes the, the best part of it is just not having seen a show before and just sitting there as a viewer, watching as a viewer would on their couch with all the distractions that come with a home, with a, with a bustling home life. Well, some of the greatest opportunity for me, and I think what's really enriched me since having kids is that family viewing experience. You know, being able to sit there and, you know, if I put my nine hat on, you know, or even uh, now with seven, but watching The Voice with the kids and watching Ninja Warrior with the kids and just seeing how they um, respond to that. Lego Masters is is one of their favourite shows. 
And, it, and yeah. it's again not lost to me that you, you see them watch Lego Masters, they run into the into the toy room, they grab all their Lego, they pull it out, and they start kind of building. <laughs> and it, it's you know it's 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 been um, a, probably an evolution in terms of how I uh, engage with 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 the with the TV now at home and that viewing experience. And it changes. This is the thing. It's like it's easy as an 18, 19 year old to sit there and consume YouTube or watch mm. um, Netflix and whatever. But that shared viewing experience, especially when, you know, you're in a family unit, it, it changes it. It changes things. And so, you know, I mean, I watch Bluey. Like, you know, I, I reckon my knowledge <laughs> of uh, the first two seasons of Bluey is pretty good. <laughs> but it's such a great show because it delivers to both the, the adults and, and the kids. And they're watching it on a different level and, and you're picking up on, you know, um, on all those things that you see a reflection of yourself in your own life. That theme about going, you know, with your gut, can you, can you tell me about a, a format you took a chance on? Um, like perhaps it was untested, not a lot of support maybe, but you trusted your gut and, and it was a success because the one that comes to mind for me, I remember David Mott was telling me about uh, MasterChef. I think that one went down like a lead balloon, what, doing a, a, a cooking show, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and, and look what happened. Yeah, I think the I think the challenge a lot of a lot of the time is that when a theme is presented, it's easier to um, to dismiss it based on what history has told you. But what wasn't pitched as part of that show was the heart, the warmth, the empathy, the human stories, um, which only come about through the crafting of amazing production unit, and so. Um, I remember back in the day what you read on the and look, I remember actually I watched MasterChef. The, I'd been watching MasterChef the UK version on Foxtel, I believe, uh, was where it originally ran. And, and but that show is fundamentally different to the show that ESA built and produced for for ten. And I think Paul Franklin um, was 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 probably one of the creative or key creatives behind that show. I my point is that it's very different in terms of being pitched an idea to actually seeing it come to fruition. And there's so many things that can go wrong in that process. But if we go back to the, the, the question, I think as a team, one of the, the ones that we're most proud of are, are those that something like a Lego Masters where the original was so different to what was eventually delivered, but the process we went through in order to get to that show, the inclusion, of Hamish Blake, which was Michael Healy's idea, um, and the work, and the, and you know, some of the best things is working with some amazing creative teams like Animal Shine, and bringing bringing it to life, um, and then seeing that show being picked up in the US, um, you know, um, or something like a Parental Guidance, which had been developed here for a very long time. I think it had been in development for three years, uh, and then we pitched it out to a couple of different. Um, production companies and eventually gave it to Eureka um, and seeing an original idea come to life because um, it's it's unique in Australia especially a strip um, uh, being able to kind of you know the, the the beginning of the seed of an idea and then seeing it going all the way into to actually coming to life as a show with the talent attached I mean this is the thing it's like so many things can go wrong in that process from inception but I think the challenge well, the, the thing you've always got to do is maintain oxygen into ideas. Never dismiss an idea before 
before you, you have to, and maybe that eventually comes, but it's always it's always being open to new ideas and allowing them to kind of go on their journey to see if you can find something there. Because some of the best ideas and the ones that we haven't come across yet will be things that people have dismissed in the past. And just because it hasn't worked in the past doesn't mean it won't work in the future. So, um, yeah, going back to the question, I think shows like Logo Masters, shows like Parental Guidance, but then seeing shows like Ninja Warrior and The Voice like completely explode out of the blocks. Um, or seeing something like A Married at First Sight, you know, again, started as a six-part um, Obdoc series um, is turned into a mega, mega reality romp, effectively, mm. um, and seeing it kind of claw back and find an audience against MKR, and, and then eventually kind of turn into the beast it is today. Like with success, obviously comes failure at times. Is there a format that you just personally hoped would have done better, um, but it, but it didn't, or maybe a show that you that you sort of had on your hands, but you let it pass and then it became a hit with a, with another network? Um, I, I actually can't think of any because I think <laughs> what eventually <laughs> you do, Aaron, is you wipe them from your conscience. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think there's probably been shows where, um, and just due, due to the nature of the beast, I think we, we have been at fault in past where, you haven't had patience with show because with a show because of whatever pressures you had at that point in time to deliver. Mm. Um, and you know, we know that shows like Have You Been Paying Attention, you know, they 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 didn't find their it didn't find its audience until you know the third, fourth season. And so, you know, it is a a great um a great example of, of, of what can happen when a show finds its audience. Um, and I think, you know, Working Dog were a big part of that as well, um, as well as obviously Bev and the team, the, the, the team at 10. Um, but in terms of shows, I, no, I think, I think for us, I think for us, there wasn't any show. There's been shows that you've been nervous about the performance of, but I wouldn't say there's any show that, that possibly, because I think by the time you see it, you kind of have a fairly good understanding of where it's going to fall. Mm. Uh, and what I mean by that is that obviously the point of commission, there's sometimes there's nothing to see. Um, and, and by the time you've actually seen the show, you know, you're like, oh, okay, some, there was probably some dodgy creative choices there or, okay, we've, we've scheduled in a slot where there's a king, there's a king hitter there and, you know, it's just not going to, it's not going to have a chance. Um, I think there were some panel shows back in the day that we probably should have persisted with. I remember there was a sports panel show that Eddie Maguire hosted that it actually had some signs of life. Um, and, you know, we kind of cut it pretty early. But I, I can't think of any of the big shows that we've had a crack with that possibly we should have continued with. Um, yeah. And look, again, like most recent history, we've had a pretty good hit rate in terms of, of those strips. Um, which obviously uh, gives you security in terms of, because I remember back in the day where, you know, I think we had um, Celebrity Overhaul um, or Excess Baggage as it was, it was, it was called. Yeah. And it, it, it launched our year and it didn't work and we, we, we pulled it. Um, I would never want to go back to a world where you have to pull, you know, an eight-week strip because 
you're faced with such a dire, <laughs> dire prospects in terms of, of, of how you navigate that. Um, and I think the world of the day of doing that is kind of over. Mm. Let's, um, let's talk about ratings. Uh, we often do that at uh, TV Black Box and plenty of arguments on that. Um, I know. It's always, it always, it's always um, uh, great conjecture in terms of those, those conversations. It also creates, um, you know, the people who like indulging in that versus those who don't. I, I notice there's often the people who just step back and go, you know what, I'm not dealing with this again. Yeah. Well, that's um, Mass for Nine, I guess to a lesser extent, The Voice for Seven would arguably be the last of the powerhouse ratings where the figures coming through are way above most other shows. We're seeing 400, 500k averages for a number of shows in overnights. And then depending on the show, anywhere between a 25%, 50% uplift in total TV, every network finds some, some success in all of their shows, you know, with their media reports in the morning. But how is it now that we can judge a show's performance on whether it's underperforming, it's doing average, or it's doing really well? Uh, well, I think it comes down to the nuance of the numbers. I mean, obviously, we, for the last you know, 10 years, have gone out and said that we're a 25-4 network. And so um, I think we need to be judged on what our 25-4 performance for that show is. Now there is obviously um, a, a, a significant shift in terms of what the overnights tell us, and we're seeing this worldwide, versus what uh, the total TV footprint looks like. And look, that changes over time. But I think where, as an industry, we've fallen behind is staying up to date with audience trends. And so even if you look at those Alice Tam overnight numbers, it actually doesn't take into consideration the audience who have watched it um, digitally overnight. And so I note um, James Warburton has said that we should uh, get rid of overnights. I think that was the headline. Mm. I, I would argue that we need to adapt and evolve that metric um, and ensure that we are delivering an overnight number that is, um, that is reflective of actually how people are consuming those shows. Um, and so I, I think back to your question, we need to be judged on our 25-4 audience delivery. Um, and we need to be judged on both what that show delivers us overnight because unduplicated reach is still a really important metric. Um, it's where we are unique in the ecosystem, the ability to deliver three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand people in one hit is why it's such a valuable thing to audience um, and advertisers. Um, but we also need to reflect how consumption has changed um, and that, you know, something like a Married at First Sight delivers both on 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 linear broadcast, um, live streaming, as well as VOD. Mm. Well, just to like to further understand that holistic picture of ratings from your perspective, let me give you three shows, and you can let me know how you think they're performing or underperforming or, or doing really well. Uh, let's start with Celebrity Apprentice because that's obviously on Channel Nine. Yep. Yeah, so I think the performance of Slavery Apprentice is probably a bit below where we'd want it to be. Um, I think the ambition for us was overnights of 450 to, to 500, and it's, 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 it's just sitting below that. I think the pleasing thing with Slavery Apprentice is that it hasn't dropped. Where it launched is where it settled. So it's found its audience. It has a core, um, robust, dedicated audience. Um, it is obviously delivering cross-platform as well, but 
I would say for us, we were hoping it was going to do a little bit more. So what about um, Big Brother on, on Seven? Because we obviously know what the overnights are for that, but then obviously it's, it's seeing a big uplift in, in total TV. Yeah, I'd say there'd be, and again, it's not my place to provide judgment on their shows. I'd say they'd be disappointed a little bit with the with the broadcast ratings, but pleased with the digital ratings um, because it is a strong performer for Seven Plus. And what about finally MasterChef? Because that's the third one in that slot. Yeah, I think its performance has stabilised and Tim would be very happy with with how it is performing at this point in time. There's, there's always um, the, the common debate, and you've heard it a million times, total people versus demos. I know you're just saying about 25 to 54 for nine. It seems to me that it, it's important when the network is winning it. I mean, it's certainly, uh, you know, if you look at back at nine's campaign, still the one. Um, you know, they had all the promos running when they were number one, but now not being number one, it, it's, well, they're not so important. I mean, to the general public, I, I guess it gauges the popularity of shows to see how many Australians are watching the show. But from a network perspective, it may not assist, obviously, with advertisers. So is there a place for total um, total people numbers? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think in terms of, I think there's, there needs to be a clear delineation between what what the commercial conversation is and I think sometimes commercial and audience focused so when I'm talking audience focused like press is related I think total people understanding demos and I talked about it in the green guide in you know 1992 you know (laughs) it it provided even then I think it provided um, both local and and uh, and national figures there and I think with the, even demos, I mean, the US have been dem- doing demos for, for 20 years, and that's because of the commercial realities around it. Um, but I think equally important is that viewers like to understand what people are watching. Mm. Um, and so I think there's a place for, for both. And for us, I think we've been fairly consistent, at least for the last 10 years, driven by commercial outcomes. The 2554s is our focus. Um, and as part of any network strategy, you need to have a clear focus and strategy in terms of how you commission. I think the worst scenario would be us not having an understanding of who we are and what we're trying to deliver upon mm. uh, and not having a clear demographic focus, which, which informs us across all platforms um, and obviously drives back to obviously how we commercialise that audience as well. And look, I, I, I don't... I don't. I do feel for you guys in terms of of trying to understand exactly, you know, um, the vernacular around who we're trying to deliver to on what platform because it's it's not easy. I mean, even internally, people are confused by it. So I think as an industry, we need to continue to do better in terms of of delivering that outcome and and those metrics and and how we actually measure success. But um, I think every network is going to have a different narrative based on what their strategy is. Well, that, that total uh, people debate has been sidelined recently for the national versus five capital city debate. Um, of course, me being on the national side and, and um, Rob McKnight being on the five city caps side. Uh, some are cynical because they believe that because the numbers are down, it seems more impressive to say, you know, 600,000 watch Celebrity Apprentice rather than 400,000. I've never understood the five cap city ratings, to be honest. I mean, if a supermarket giant like, you know, wants to advertise nationally, then I would imagine they would want to include all Australians. We've always had 
you know, local advertising, um, and that's never going to change because there's Sydney local ads, and then there's Perth local ads, and there's Melbourne local ads. Can you can you please make the the debate, I guess, a bit more clearer from a network perspective about national versus five cap cities? Well, I think it came back to ownership at the end of the day. It's like we didn't own our regionals, we didn't actually even own Adelaide and Perth stations at one point in time. So, I think. Um, that really came back to the ownership debate because we were selling five cap cities um, and we measured ourselves on that. So, you know, ultimately, I think it, it goes back to that. We probably didn't have a control of our own destiny at that point in time. So you measured yourself against the thing that you get um, probably rewarded upon. Uh, I think that's what it, ultimately that's what it goes back to. Um cynically, are we only reporting on or, or delivering that kind of national view. Um, I think it's, it's different depending on who you talk to. Um, obviously, Seven have bought Prime or are in the process of doing that. Um, and so they've got a vested interest in terms of delivering or talking about a national footprint. For us, they're still um, a little bit different. It's a little bit different in terms of, of that ownership structure. Um, again, I think there's the commercial reality versus how you view it as a, as a punter. Um, and I don't think I've really answered your question, but I, I think there's, I think the challenge is it's, it's a historical, it's a historical challenge based on ownership. So where do you think we're at now? Do you, do you think moving this year, next year, we're going to move into a national, uh, ratings only, or is there still a place of five cap cities? Um, I can only talk from my experience and I would say that we are, more focused than ever on on all our audience, wherever they may be. Okay. The, the networks together brief Oztam as, as to what parameters they want reported. So how can we still have this redundant survey year? Is, is it time to ditch it? Oh, look, mate, it's, it's, it really just gives us a couple of weeks off. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's possibly what it comes down to. I, I don't think we think about things in terms of a survey year anymore. And you could see that, you know, in terms of how we, we schedule. Um, we're obviously conscious that it is different in the summertime, and especially around Christmas where you've got less eyeballs on your content. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that that is something that, you know, in terms of the competition, they don't turn off. And when I'm talking competition, I'm talking every other person who's competing for eyeballs and time at this point in time. They're always serving up content. So I think for us, you know, we need to uh, do that as well. And so I think, yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree. It is a, re it's somewhat redundant a survey. Yeah. You, you actually touched on this um, a little bit, but I get emails all the time from networks about ratings saying you need to understand this perspective or this perspective in your reporting. My question is, how is the media supposed to sift through information from networks when all they say is, is, is that they won, but using different metrics? Uh, as an example, seven wins the network night nationally, nine wins the network night five capital cities, nine is winning calendar year, seven is winning survey, seven won the night in 25 to 54, but nine specifically won 25 to 54 with their main 10 poll program. Nine is winning, you know, this on, on average ratings, seven is winning on weeks one. Um, seven wins 16 to 39 and, and 25 to 54 in capital cities on primary, but seven wins them both nationally on network. So should there not be a balance, uh, oh, sorry, a, a baseline in reporting and then have an analysis, analysis afterwards? 
I think there is a baseline and that is the predetermined demo. So we, and I know, I remember you chatting about this in terms of GBs with kids, but there is, you know, total people, 2554s, 1639s, I mean, less so 1849s because it's a combination of the two. That's more of a US metric and GBs with kids. You know, when we start going out of those demographics, I think you're pushing pushing the barrel a little bit. There are some, there are predetermined demos. Um, I think you're, you, you guys are a, a free media organisation and you have the ability to, to report on whatever you want. I think it it is up to you guys to just determine exactly what your audience wants to hear. And if that's total people, so be it. But um, it's just understanding with context that, you know, we, we target 25 T4s and that was our performance on 25 T4s. But ultimately, um, I think less is best as well, to be fair, Aaron. I think if you start digging down um that's where confusion comes but again it comes down to the nuance of reporting and ensuring that we're delivering very clear and concise um numbers um and and what i mean by that is it's going back to this overnight situation whereby we're actually not reporting on the full number because actually um it's not set up to do that at this point in time now obviously the industry is pushing to ensure that we get to a point where we are um, reporting that full number, um, and hopefully we provide greater clarity moving forward. But I, I again, I think I think the numbers are there. I, th- I hope that the numbers are there uh, in terms of what those total people shares are, what the twenty fifty four shares are, and then it's up to you guys to determine as 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 journo's and reporters um, what what is fair and equitable. I want to expand on something that uh, you said earlier about maths. Um, it's still a powerhouse and it's crushing everything in its path. But usually when a show is performing well in overnights, the competition does better in catch up because obviously the audience is watching that show live and then they have to catch up on the, on the other shows later. However, despite Nine having phenomenal numbers in overnights and maths, it had huge uplifts in total TV. That actually blew my mind. Were you even surprised that it that it did super well in both metrics? Um, well, look, it, yes and no in that it has been doing that for, you know, the last kind of five years. Um, and look, I think it does come down to the demographic composition. So this is where I kind of think it is important in that it's the type of show, it sits in the reality romance space. There is a kind of core 16 to 39 female skewing audience that are more inclined to be watching via VOD, but it is such a beast and creates headlines and stories that you get kind of that total TV or total um, audience as well. And I think it's one of those rare, well, it is absolutely, it sits above and beyond anything else in terms of how it delivers across different demos on different platforms. And it's kind of like self-serving in many ways in that, the storylines and the noise around it kind of drives a lot of this Um, and it's it's kind of alchemy in in a way Uh, again I can't point to anything else on air at this point in time or even in the last 10 years that is that is delivered in a way it has Um, and it and it's not something you can look at and go how do you recreate that Um, I think it's Part of it is where it's been, the journey it's gone through. Um, but also, you know, like uh, it, it, we always look at it as like it's a big soap opera. You, you bring in a new cast of characters and obviously the format that was created with ESA, 
has a proven track record of continuing to deliver on those storylines. I think one of the challenges you would say is, well, how do you up on the last season or how do you create noise like the last season? Mm. But it's actually finding the different stories and the different characters that are reflective of the times um, to do that. And so uh, I think probably the thing for us is its ability to sustain and continue to drive hard when it, it burns so brightly. Um, but, yeah, I th- it's just to show that because of the people who consume it, the audience composition, it's one that delivers a, both with a broad audience because people don't want to miss out on it, uh, but also with a kind of streaming first audience as well. And it's why you see such a huge footprint in terms of both live streaming audience um, as well as a, a VOD or a video on demand audience. Well, let's move on to our Ninja Warrior. Um, that's obviously coming uh, back without Beck and Ben. Did, did you ever consider folding the show or, or was this an opportunity for a, for a big refresh? Yeah, I, I think through change comes opportunity. So, you know, I feel like we've really re-energised the show just in terms of the format beats. Um, you know, the, the the latest promo is out at the moment. Um, it's the kind of young guns. So the teens are, are on the rise and they're taking on the establishment. Um, and there's a new kind of race component where they they, they race side by side. Um, and it just feels like a kind of a completely new and refreshed show. And I think... The energy that Layla and Jim bring to it um, only builds on that. So, no, we never thought of uh, folding the show. We thought about how do you evolve the show, um, you know, in what is, you know, its fifth, sixth season. Com Games are uh, coming up for seven soon. Uh, so what are the plans for Nine? Obviously, Nine can do one of three things. Um, they can use it essentially as a, as a repeat fortnight and, and rest your tent poles. You can run a normal schedule or you can run really aggressively a counter-program. What, what strategy will we be using this year with the Commonwealth Games? Well, I think the clue to that, Aaron, lies in what we did against the Olympics and also in in how I answered the question before and that we, we, we don't look at it just in terms of survey year. You know, we need to be always providing uh, always providing for our audience, ensuring that they continue, continue to be stimulated, that we continue momentum and that we continue to give them a reason to switch on. Um, so we definitely won't be going in with a repeat schedule. Um, it'll be business as usual. Fair enough. Um, well, you're the man in charge of programming. A very quick update on a, on a couple of shows. Um, I, I always get a few Kiwis asking me when uh, Westside's coming back because there's one final season to go. Is, is that going to come up on Gem or something soon? Yes. Yep, absolutely. I can't give you specific dates, but it will be back. Um, yep. And what about Country Home Rescue? That was sort of promised for the end of last year, um, but hasn't surfaced yet. I think that's with Shana Blaze. Is that, is that coming Yeah, up? that's right. It was a few production challenges there, but... Uh, primarily related to COVID, but um, because we missed the block cycle last year, it'll be, it'll be um, coming in this year, kind of back end of the year. And what do you think about the future for the, for the weakest link? Uh, you know, there was average ratings sometimes, but the specials worked quite well. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, Aaron. It, it, the, you know, obviously when we programmed off the back of um, the related theme through the celebrity, so whether it be the blockheads or, um, you know, the travel guides, it, 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 it did find an audience. So I think we obviously looked at that, looked at where those numbers kind of really popped. Um, and I think we're still kind of assessing, you know, what we do with that format moving forward. 
Nine has been doing a lot of investment in, in the post tentpole uh, shows, you know, around 8.30, like the 100 um, under investigation, Australia Behind Bars, emergency paramedics to, to success, really. Is, is this something you'll, you'll keep focusing on? Yeah, 100%. I mean, this really talks to that kind of relevancy question. It's We know that in, in a kind of... SVOD world where, you know, 70% of the population or probably more now has has that, that post the strip, they were kind of looking at alternatives. And, and so, you know, the challenge was for us to, again, drive to a greater relevancy through that period, ensure that we were providing new, fresh content that um, gave people a reason to stay on the platform. Um, you know, we don't want to just kind of put our hands in the air and say, oh, yeah, off you go. You're done with us for the night. Um, so we're absolutely always thinking about ways in which we can continue, um, you know, driving audience vertically on the platform. And what I mean by that is keeping them on the platform for longer. Um, you know, one of the big changes of late has been, you know, that real increase in terms of live streaming. So mm -hmm. people have got connected TVs watching um, uh, the live nine stream. And what we're seeing is, you know, the, the patterns of, of old where that vertical flow is continuing to be really important and how do we keep people on the platform for longer. Um, and I think our best defence is, is is good content and strong content. And so investment in shows like Under Investigation with Liz Hayes, uh, obviously The 100, which has been really successful for us with Andy Lee, um, to things like emergency paramedics, et cetera, um, just talks to that value proposition to keep people on the platform for longer. I'm pretty sure you're the last network making television for Saturday nights with, um, you know, ACAs there and Space Invaders has, has been there. Do you still see some potential in Saturday nights outside of sport? Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, it, 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 became, it becomes a bit of a wasteland when you just go into a bit of a repeat movie cycle. And again, you need to provide a reason for people to stay on the platform. And I think something like Space Invaders, um, you know, Friday nights is challenging because you, you do have sport across, um, <clears throat> across uh, well, especially through the winter months, um, whereas Saturday we don't. Uh, obviously, Seven have the AFL. Uh, and so we saw that as an opportunity to, to perhaps provide some fresh content there and, and obviously working with WTFN. We came up with um, Space Invaders. Uh, it was originally called Inside Out. Uh, that was its um, that was its uh, working title. <clears throat> but uh, no, we're really happy with that show. Um, happy with the performance. And and again, this this talks to providing a reason for people to tune into Nine on the Saturday night or stay with Nine post um, post the news and ACA. All right, a couple of other um, subjects, I guess. I know the NBCU deal is up in the air. I believe offers have been made. No announcement yet about that. If you did lose the NBC deal, my feeling is that it wouldn't make a, a big dent in broadcast because Nine really doesn't rely on US comedies and dramas. They're usually late night, but it might uh, have more of an impact on Nine now and Stan. How important is the NBC deal for Nine? Um. Look, I think we've got Stan have a deal um, with NBC um, and we still have a deal uh, with NBC until the end of this year. Um, you know, I think I think there is value uh, in maintaining that deal, but I think there are still... I think, I think what happened was people got caught in a cycle where they said, everyone's going direct consumer, there's only going to be one distributor in the market. 
uh, and that hasn't played out. Um, and we've seen it in terms of what's happening in the streaming space. You know, like Netflix came in as the big disruptor, but the the market value that was put on that business was based on this unsustainable growth. And I think what happened was they took the growth through COVID as just kind of, uh, you know, it's just, it was business as usual. And obviously they've run into some challenges post that period where people have gone back to normal living and that that growth wasn't sustainable. Mm. And the kind of futures business model kind of fell apart. And we've seen that kind of reflected in their share price. Um, And what I mean by that is that, you know, Streaming was the toast of the town, especially those big US direct-to-consumers, and they they probably all thought that it was going to um, grow their market value and that this was a sustainable business model. And I question whether that is the case, and I would I think that perhaps some will come back into the the um, the, the, the open market and have come back into the open market because the distribution orders are huge. Yeah. Um, so I think with everything. As things evolve, as, as things change, um, you know, those businesses adapt. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's it's not the doom and gloom of scarcity that perhaps everyone thought was going to be the case a couple of years ago. On a similar theme, let's go to the multi-channels. And, and I know Nine Rush and Nine Life are, are reliant on programming from Discovery. Um, uh, but with HBO Max and Discovery set to launch in Australia in 2023, probably, um, when, when current deals expire, will, will that sort of spell the end of, of these channels? No, I think Discovery is very much, very very focused on looking at free-to-air as a, as a, as a driver for brand and marketing and, and awareness. Um, and so we've got a very strong relationship with them in terms of uh, both Nine Life and Discovery deals. Those are long-term deals, so they're not going away anytime soon. Um, and I think they can coexist and I know they can coexist and that is very much the conversations that we're having um, with them. So, yeah, I, I've, I have no doubt um, that those relationships will continue. I was interested to know, though, um, has, has any of those deals changed? Because predominantly in the last six months, I've noticed that, that um, those channels used to have wall-to-wall new programming, 7.30 to 11.30, um, with all that huge content that you have, but there's a lot of repeats that have been thrown in lately. Has something changed with that, or is it just the cycle of of shows? No, it's just the cycle. It it will will start amping up the kind of the fresher content. It, it sometimes it relates to the deal that you've had previously and the the rollover into the next one. Um, you know, we have gone through a couple of years of COVID, which have affected production cycles across the world. Um, and you're probably seeing a little bit of a lag effect of that, but um, no, it's not. It's not related to a change in deal or deal terms. Nine Rush and Nine Life and Nine Jimmer, I think, are very identifiable channels in knowing what you're going to get. Nine Go used to be the most popular Nine multi-channel um, and very, you know, young branding. It seems, in my opinion, to go on the way of seven flicks with people not quite understanding what it what it is, and ratings kind of reflect that now. What, what, what is Nine Go now and what are the plans for the channel? You know, it's a really good question. I think, um, you know, <clears throat> it probably again come, came about as where, where the inception of that channel came from. And back in 2009, we had a Warner Brothers output deal where there was a lot of content that we 
didn't have a platform to place that content. And so I think in term, instead of building a channel based on a brand identity, we build it based on an output deal. And so I think because of that, you lose a sense of identity, especially when you lose the content that comes came with that output deal. Right. Whereas things like Life and Rush, very cl- clearly defined audience, clearly defined genre, clearly defined brand, Gem as well, it, it kind of knew its audience. Um, and so, yeah, I, I totally agree. It has lost its identity, but it's also been hit by, I think Go had a high proportion of viewers who... I kind of describe as default viewers whereby they've kind of surfed around, they've had a look and, you know, they then flick on a movie. Um, I think what's happened is because the SVODs are coming to play, that that level of default viewing has has dropped and diminished quite a bit. Mm. And so it's kind of suffering on two fronts. Um, and so I think we probably need to relook at exactly what it stands for who its audience is and the kind of content pipeline that can be delivered that's sustainable above and beyond that of, um, you know, those output deals. On a completely different uh, tangent, um, you're recently at the LA screenings. Um, can you tell me about that and about the trip and any, any, any possible announcements? Um, yeah, look, it was great to travel again. We hadn't been to LA for three years, um, obviously because of COVID. Um, and it was my first international trip since kind of the, the, the COVID um, pandemic. Um, I think in terms of top line, look, it has changed. Uh, we know that those big production companies, well, some like Disney aren't, aren't, aren't screening anymore because they've gone, they've gone uh, fully into direct-to-consumer. Um, and the content on offer was, had changed quite a bit, you know, for the first time or first time from my memory, we really saw a, a more blended mix of content from both US um, and international players, including uh, Australians. There was content from Binge and Stan uh, that were being showcased um, and were met to some really warm um, appraisal. Um, so I think it's interesting because I think there's, there was two things were happening. One is that COVID has again created a little bit of lag in terms of that creative development. So in terms of the cycle where they had that date of May as being where they do the upfronts in New York, they didn't then do the screenings to showcase all that new content. They're out of cycle a little bit. Mm. I think that'll correct itself a little bit next year. Um, but I think probably the change in how viewers are consuming and where they're consuming was probably where the biggest changes come. And again, I, I kind of point out the type of content they're showing was, was, was uh, a little bit more um, broad to what we normally see where you know, I think 15 years ago it would be all the big broadcast shows that, you know, likes of Fox, CBS, ABC were going to be launching uh, in their fall slate. And I think now it, it's, it's a bit more balanced um, and look, there's, it's fair to say that 50% of the audience now are from streamers. So uh, you've got a different audience in mind who have different, different tastes. And so the, the, the content on offer was, was, was suitably different. Last couple of questions. Um, your expectations for the rest of the year in terms of winning the year in total people, um, 25 to 54, um, grocery buyers, et cetera? Yeah, look, I think we've got a really strong slate from from now through the back end. A lot of proven shows. We've got a few new ones coming in there. Um, 
So I think, you know, we will, again, perform really strongly in terms of 2054s and, and total people as well. Um, you know, the interesting thing, Aaron, is that, again, that metric doesn't reflect the total TV viewing audience. You get to the end of the year and Oztam will produce a, a set of numbers that are reflective of a, 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 a portion, albeit a large portion, of, of how your content is consumed. So I guess the question for us is, again, to, to James's call around the overnights, how do we, as a as a industry, um, start reporting on numbers from both overnights and end of year that is more reflective of exactly what's happening with the audience and how they're consuming? All right. So we're enjoying um, Celebrity Apprentice at the moment. Um, that's heading into the, its final two weeks. Um, what what are the next couple of shows we'll we'll roll into? So Ninja Warrior, obviously. Um, you know we've got. Big three state of origin um, yeah. uh, telecast, which obviously one will have now passed by. Um, Beauty and the Geek will be back. Uh, the obviously the block, which we've got a big uh, change in terms of the tree change. So the first time we're moving out of the CBD or the burbs uh, and into the countryside, and really kind of reflecting, um, you know, what we've seen change with uh, society over the last kind of couple of years. Um, we obviously have parental guidance coming back, which, you know, we're really pleased with that result, um, last year, uh, that's shooting at the moment. There's a couple of new formats that we're working on. Um, I would, I would think that one of those will be definitely on at the back end of this year. Um, and then obviously also working on the likes of, of snack masters, as well as those eight thirty shows that you mentioned, we've got a new season of paramedics, emergency, the hundred UI, all those shows will be back again this year. Awesome. Well, Hamish, good luck with the rest of the year and well done on a successful start to the year with um, the Australian Open and Maths and everything else that's, um, you know, coming up. No, thanks, Aaron, and, and good, to, uh, good to finally chat.